It's great to be here. Our topic this evening is, uh, God, why am I so unhappy when I have so much? I'll just put that down. I want to start off by doing a bit of a a magic trick, a mind-reading trick. I've been practicing it all week. And it requires you to look into my eyes. So everyone, if you've gone to sleep, wake up, wake up. Look into my eyes and I'm going to read your mind, okay? I'm going to read your mind. Stop it. (laughs) You want to be happy, right? Yeah? I'm reading everyone's mind. You can do it to me. You don't even have to look into my eyes. You know that I want to be happy. That's the... That's the insight into this question tonight. We all want to be happy. There is no one who wants to be unhappy. It's a a universal desire that we all want to be happy. Aristotle said, happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life. The whole aim and end of human existence. Rings true, right? Uh, Pascal said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to, the, to this end. He says that we've all got individual sources where we go for our happiness. I know that Stu uh, is happy when he eats a kebab on a Thursday lunchtime or when he's playing soccer on the soccer field. I know that Dave is happy when he is causing havoc in Ikea on the trolleys. We've all got our different sources of happiness, haven't we? All got our different sources of happiness. But we all know that happiness has this uh, short shelf life. It comes and it goes. It's fleeting. It has its highs and its, its lows. We have happy times and we have sad times. We diarise happy times. We can't diarise unhappy times. And so... Life puts us on this quest, doesn't it? This, this quest to find happiness. Uh, and we work hard to find happiness. We, we live in a pretty good city. Um, apparently we are the 12th richest nation in the world. But in the, in the happiness index, uh, we rank only 76 out of 156 nations. There is actually a happiness uh, 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 a uh, happiness index. So we score uh, 76 out of 156. We work hard for happiness. Eric Hoffer has got this uh, brilliant insight. He says that the search for happiness is one of the chief sources of unhappiness. So that's why we score so highly when we have so much. And yet as a nation we are classed as being relatively unhappy. We're on this quest for happiness. Maybe you've been on this quest for happiness. You know that happiness is fleeting. You've tried a few things to find happiness. Uh, perhaps you've climbed the, the top of your career ladder. Do you know the, um, the, 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 the career that is, uh, is meant to be the happiest job in Australia? Do you know what that is? Clergy. <laughs> Ordained ministers. I don't know who they asked. Um, <laughs> anyway. Perhaps you've, you've tried to find happiness, perhaps you've watched one of the one million YouTube clips uh, that are out there, or one of the 50 TED Talks, perhaps you've read the, be- the New York Times bestseller, The Happiness Project, perhaps you've even phoned The Happiness Institute, anyone done that? We have a Happiness Institute, or perhaps you've even visited Costa Rica, officially the happiest nation on the planet. Perhaps you've tried all that stuff 
and you still want answers. Well, tonight uh, we're going to look at the Bible. No surprises there. This is a church. I'm an Anglican minister. We're going to look at the Bible and ask the question, why am I so unhappy when I have so much? And it's difficult to do this because you've got to kind of slice through the Bible and work out what the Bible says. But I think uh, the Bible gives us three things. The Bible gives us an insight, a warning, and a promise. An insight, a warning, and a promise. So firstly, the Bible gives us an insight into our world. Uh, It's there in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. It's on page 607. And uh, uh, Ecclesiastes says this. I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. Ecclesiastes is, uh, was written uh, 3,000 years ago. It's one of the wisdom books. And the question it answers is, how do we make sense of the world living under the cloud of death day by day? Uh, We meet a man in Ecclesiastes, most people think it's Solomon, who has climbed the top of the tree. He's got as high as he can get. And his summary of success and pleasure and life and things is absolute futility. Everything is futile. That's how Ecclesiastes starts and that's how Ecclesiastes ends. It's interesting, isn't it, when you look at the success of his life. I'm just going to skim through from verse 4. He says, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I constructed reservoirs of water for myself. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves. I owned many herds of cattle and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself, and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself, and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure. It's one heck of a LinkedIn profile, isn't it? You do not want to be friends with this guy on Facebook. He is going to be Instagramming all of his, uh, his parks and his gardens and his male and his female servants. He's got the lot. He's the top of his tree. He's achieved everything. Materially, he has more than anyone else. Did you notice that? He says that he, has, uh, he amassed more than anyone in Jerusalem. He's rich. He's wise. He's secure. But look at verse 11 and we see his conclusion. He says, when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. He has everything and he describes it as futility. Now that word futility in the Hebrew uh, is the word hebel. If you say it right, you you spit all over the person you're talking to. Uh, You might have seen it translated vanity in the NIV or other translations. Uh, But what Hebel means is a a vapour or a mist, a breath. And what Ecclesiastes says is that everything we see, everything we do in this world is a mist. It's fleeting. 
its passing. Now I reckon Misty explains our quest for happiness pretty well, doesn't it? You can't grasp it. When you achieve something, you always want more. When you're poor, you want to be rich. When you're rich, you want to be richer. Uh, When you're in a unit, you want to be in a house. When you're in a house, you want to be in a better house with a swimming pool. When you're studying at uni, you want to be working. And when you're working, you want to be the boss. You want to work in a big building with a big company and a big fat salary check. We always want more. We always want more in love, in life, in work and play. We always want the upgrade, don't we? We always want the the free upgrades. And yet it always seems just a little bit out of reach. The writer uh, of Ecclesiastes says, it's like chasing the wind. It cannot be caught. Madonna spoke of this feeling uh, once. She said, I I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. Then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. See, Madonna knows what it's like to chase the wind. Tom York, the lead singer of Radiohead, put it another way. He was speaking on ambition. He said, uh, he said, ambition for what? He says, I thought that when I got to where I wanted to be, everything would be different. I'd be somewhere else. I thought it would be all white, fluffy clouds. And then I got there, and I'm still here. He was asked, well, why do you do what you do? And he replied, it's filling a hole. That's all anyone does. The interviewer comes back and says, well, what's happened to that hole now? And he paused for a long time and he said, the hole's still there. See, Tom York, uh, the lead singer of one of uh, the world's most famous bands, one of the most uh, richest bands, has this Ecclesiastes experience. He knows what it's like to chase the wind. But as you read on in Ecclesiastes, uh, we're taught that God has deliberately designed, designed our world like that, designed us like that. In, in, in chapter 3, we're told God has set eternity in our hearts. He has designed our hearts to long for something better. Oh, yes, we'll enjoy good times from God. We'll enjoy the good things from God. We'll we'll take the good gifts from God. But they alone, Ecclesiastes says, will never satisfy. They won't fill that hole that Tom York was talking about. We, from day to day on our own, without God, we are chasing the wind. See, the Bible says we are designed to be satisfied by a relationship with God alone. 
That hole, that dissatisfaction, that chasing of the wind, the vapour, the mist, uh, the thirst that we often feel, the upgrade that we want, will only be quenched by a relationship with God. Of course, um, there's plenty of things in this world that promise to fill that hole. And that's why the Bible makes a very special warning about our hearts. So my second point is that the Bible gives us a warning about our hearts. Now now our our hearts have this willingness to fill that hole with fake gods, idols, the Bible calls them. Uh, Our hearts are like the the coyote in the Roadrunner cartoons. They're crafty and they're sneaky and, and they want what they can't have. Anyone know the first commandment? Come on. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods beside me. When we think about idolatry, we think of uh, people bowing down to golden statues, or if we're sophisticated, uh, bowing down to a truck full of $100 bills. But idols are more subtle than that, uh, because our hearts are more susceptible uh, than that. Tim Keller, in his excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, describes an idol like this. He says, an idol is when you take something good, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and you allow it to take over your heart, and, and your heart makes it the ultimate. See, idols are not the bad stuff. They are the good stuff in our lives, made the ultimate. And idols so easily uh, do that because they promise to fill the hole. They promise to deliver our happiness. They promise uh, that stuff, that satisfaction outside of God. And idols subtly control us. Because they make us think that unless we have them, our lives are meaningless. I used to work in advertising. We did some pretty good business based on this insight. uh, Based on uh, this desire for our hearts to uh, to be satisfied. Coke promises to make you happy if you drink it. Lynx promises to get you a girl if you spray it under your arms. L'Oreal tells you that you are worth it. Now, idols are not just those obvious things. We can spot those. They are the subtle things. I'll tell you about uh, me as a teenager growing up. As a teenager, we were pretty poor. Uh, My folks divorced when we were 11, and my uh, mother lived in a house that she couldn't really afford. And and so we were properly poor. Uh, I had to sell a birthday present uh, the day after I got it so that we could eat that night. Uh, Only looking back, I realized how poor we were. Uh, Now, I promised myself that I would never live like that, that I would never be uh, financially insecure like that. I hated the feeling, and I never wanted uh, to live like that. Now, that is a good thing for me. That is a good thing for my family. But in my 20s, that desire not to be financially secure became an idol for me. Became an idol. And it took over my life and affected all the decisions that I made. I was tight, so I was a bad friend. I was a friend in real financial need. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't afford to help you. 
Terrible friend. You don't want to go to the bar with me in my 20s. Um, I was a miserable Christian. I was tight with my giving. I gave, uh, but it was pittance. It was pittance. Uh, I think I, I spent more in the pub on a Thursday night than I gave to church in my 20s. And, and, and that meant that I could not be a proper gospel partner uh, with my church. I was involved in a, a really good church in Covent Garden. And I could not celebrate the wins of Christian ministry because I knew that I wasn't a fu- uh, fully a partner. Uh, I was a miserable Christian. I delayed going into Christian ministry because I did not want to be in that situation where I would not be financially secure. And it was miserable knowing that I should be in that position but uh, sweating it out in the advertising world because my idol was controlling me. See, idols offer happiness but they demand a sacrifice. A career demands the sacrifice of your family and your friends all too often. A nice house demands the sacrifice of job satisfaction. A relationship might demand the sacrifice of your Christian faith. Do you know that Jesus warns us more about greed in the Bible than sex? And you can see why, can't you? Because idols latch onto that. I want to ask you tonight, what are your idols? What are your idols? What have promised you? What things have promised you happiness and satisfaction? What have you sacrificed for your idols? What is it that in your life uh, that you look at and say in your heart of hearts that if I just had that, I would feel significant and secure. What is it that in your life, if it was taken away, will render your life meaningless and empty? The thing we need to remember about idols is that they don't, uh, they don't just don't deliver, they take as well. The dad who works an 80-hour week for his children's happiness, but doesn't get to see his kids. The person who marries for money, but ends up in a worse financial state because of a costly divorce. Idols take, they demand a sacrifice, and only God can satisfy the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, knew this, uh, chapter 2, 24. He said, there is nothing better for a man than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I've seen that even this is from God's hand. Because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? See, idols are fake. They promise much and they deliver little. The big thing about idols is that they ultimately, they don't answer the big questions of life. They don't answer the questions of what will happen when I die. They do not fill the, 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 the need of wanting to feel eternally happy and satisfied. They just suck us out. They suck us in and spit us out. I want to encourage you tonight, if there is things on your heart, there are idols that you know are ruling your life, ruling your decisions, ruling your wallet, ruling your diary. I want to encourage you tonight to take them off the throne of your life and put them back into the servant's court as where they belong.
Put God back on the throne. The Bible gives us a warning about our hearts. Thirdly, the, the good stuff, the Bible gives us a promise in Jesus. Now in Jesus, we are a promised happiness because Jesus gives us hope through the mist that is this world. I wonder whether you noticed, as, uh, as Tara read out Matthew 13, uh, how the kingdom of God was described. Did you notice? Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant, a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Now the entrepreneurs among us are thinking, what is the yield on that pearl? Uh, The rest of us are thinking, why on earth would you sell everything to become a Christian? Have you not seen how they dress? Have you not heard the music they're into? Why would you sell anything, let alone everything? But the answer is, is that Jesus is worth that because of the hope that he gives us through the death, through his death on the cross. See, Jesus uh, turns uh, this world's uh, view of how to be happy on its head because he promises to give us resurrection life, eternal life, and that turns everything on its head. In one of uh, Jesus' most famous sermons, he said, uh, he said uh, the, the poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn are blessed. For they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed. For they will inherit the earth. The word for blessed is the Greek word makarios. And makarios means happy. He says the poor in spirit will be happy. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who mourn are blessed. For they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed. For they will inherit the earth. Do you see where the hope lies? In the future, in the resurrection hope. This is what's so good about the gospel. Jesus takes the promises of the world and turns them on their head and turns the values of this world on its head. And says, trust me and I will give you everlasting happiness. It's not that Jesus will deliver us health and wealth and good times now. Life will go up and down and if anyone promises you that you uh, will get a Ferrari from following Jesus or that you will be rich, always happy or always in good health, then they are preaching a dangerous prosperity gospel. But the gospel is this, that Jesus' death opens up the keys to a whole new world. He promises to make those who mourn happy, those who have been trampled on in this life, happy. Those who have been selfless and watched everyone else take the top of the tree in the, on the career path, he promises to make them happy. The hope of resurrection is the hope of eternity, living in a world where our needs will be completely met and our hearts will be completely satisfied. And that changes the world, that changes the way we live in this world now now 
Uh, we will. We need to be realistic. We will go after idols in this world, but we need to remember that those idols do not satisfy. Do you remember uh, what Jesus promises the woman at the well in John chapter four? Uh, the woman of Samaria. He promises her uh, to quench her thirst forever. To quench her desires for satisfaction, for happiness, for completeness. He promises to quench that feeling forever. See, Jesus is better than idols. Jesus is better than this world. Because Jesus is not vapour. The life he promises is not vapour, but eternal and permanent. Jesus is better than an idol because Jesus is God himself designed to fit into that shaped hole in our hearts and promises to give us satisfaction. Jesus is better than an idol because he doesn't demand a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice and pays the price to give us satisfaction, to give us eternal life. So Jesus is better than anything in this world because anything in this world will not last. Jesus' promises are eternal. The relationship he gives you now with God the Father is forever. The inheritance he promises to any believer will never perish, spoil or fade. It is being kept in heaven for you and you are being kept for it. The home he gives us in heaven will be like nothing on this world because it will be in a world that is nothing like our world where there is no crying or mourning or pain or suffering. There is no unhappiness. There is no dissatisfaction. There is no vapour. There is no mist. This world is fading. Uh, when, um, I don't know whether you remember, in 2008 when Le- uh, the, the investment bank uh, Lehman Brothers folded, uh, it sparked the world into financial turmoil. Anyway, on the last... Um, on the last day of the, in the office uh, for the bank, uh, this, image, this image was placed outside the bank. And there was a guy there, I think he was trying to make money out of everyone. He, um, he got all the employees to write a little slogan. And there's, you, know, you can see crooks and all of this, uh, bloodsuckers. There were all these kind of messages about greed and how disgruntled everyone was, was with, the, with the bank. But you can't see it on this picture. But in the middle of the picture, someone wrote Matthew twenty four thirty five: Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The hope that Jesus promised is eternal. This world is vapor. This world is mist. But the promises in Jesus are eternal. Now we need God's help to believe that. We need God's help to believe that Jesus is better. Our idols will fail. This world will fall apart. Our friends, the ones we love, will grow old and they will die. But heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. Matthew 24 35. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and those who uh, trust Jesus will be kept for that kingdom 
for eternity. And that will make us happy. Let's pray.